Take your Bibles this morning, and last week we started a series in the book of Titus. So go ahead and turn to the book of Titus, and go to chapter 1, and we're going to start reading in verse 5, verses 5 through 9. And we're going to talk about something that most people don't really give too much consideration to, but it uh, apparently was very, very high on Paul's list of things to accomplish and things to do. Now, I grew up <clears throat> in uh, a typical kid in a typical family uh, going to typical Southern Baptist churches. And back in those days, my dad was in the military, so we were in a lot of different places and a lot of different churches. And you know what was interesting about Southern Baptist churches back in the 70s particularly? They were all pretty much the same. You went into one, and it was kind of like going to McDonald's in different cities. You sort of knew what you were going to get, and they were kind of cut and dried, and they operated a certain way. And uh, one of the things that uh, would happen about every month was what was called the monthly business meeting. How many of you love business meetings? You know, some people like them because, uh, boy, you couldn't see a better fight in 15 rounds. So you want to show up that night, right? And then uh, a lot of people just hated them. And in the times I pastored in churches where they had those, it was the lowest attended service period. People just didn't like them. And there were things that would happen. Sometimes it would cause scars and hurts and problems forever. And then sometimes... There would be things that would come up. Oh, one time I was sitting on the front row of a church. <clears throat> they wanted to hear me preach and uh, see whether they wanted to extend a call to me or not. And the first available thing was on a Wednesday night. And so I, sat, I preached for about 30 minutes. And then I sat down and the chairman of the deacons got up, called the church into a business session. And uh, they went literally 20 minutes over a $10 item. I wanted to just say, here's 10 bucks, move on, do something worthwhile. They were talking about uh, the parsonage of the church that, uh, you know, maybe instead of having the pastor set up his own uh, electricity or, I mean, phone and that kind of thing, uh, that means the phone number changes for the parsonage every time we get a new pastor. Why don't we as a church just go ahead and do it? And so people started talking about the pros and the cons and the ups and the downs. And then somebody said to a guy named Pete, Pete was a brand new Christian who didn't know how everything was supposed to work. And somebody said, Pete, what do you think? And he goes, I already did it. And everybody goes, oh, well, we didn't vote or anything. What, what was already done? He didn't know. All Pete knew was something needed, something needed to be done. Just do it. And I remember sitting there going, I like Pete. <laughs> I like Pete, you know. And uh, I remember being in one church where the first Sunday I was there, they had about 90 in Sunday school, 95 or something like that. A year later, we had 180-some. That's roughly double. And we were in dire need of space, dire need of space. And we had some remodeling that we could do in the church, but we had to go to the business meeting in order to get it done. Well, you would think a simple up and down vote would work, but no, no, it didn't work that way. <sighs> Somebody said, have you talked to the property and space committee? No. 
And uh, so we had that month where we had to talk to them, and they all kind of came up with a plan, and so they brought it back the next month. And the next month, when they did it, somebody said, well, did that committee meet with the budget committee? No. So we had to go another month, month, and we had to meet with the budget committee. And then somebody else said, when that was done, how does that fit in with the long-range planning committee that we did? And so we had to do that. And what happened is it took about six or seven months before we were able to make a move on that. And you know what happened? Sadly, we didn't need the space anymore. And I was in uh, Dallas a few years ago, and I happened to drive by that church. And that was back in 1985 that all that happened and all that growth was taking place. I looked at that church, and it's virtually unchanged since 1985. What happened? We got tangled up in the red tape, got tangled up in all of that, or something we needed to do. Aren't you glad that when you need open-heart surgery that the doctor doesn't have to do a business meeting? Or two? Or three? Or seven? Something seemed to be wrong about that. And if that were the only problem, that would be just, oh, okay. But the other problem would be things like, uh, I was in one business meeting where they were talking about doing some building for a new uh, parsonage for us to live in. And uh, some lady raised her hand and said, well, did anybody talk to my nephew? My nephew builds cabinets. And nobody had. And in fact, the committee putting together the parsonage didn't want to talk to her nephew. He had a bad reputation. And now all of a sudden you've got hurt feelings and things like that. It always seemed to be like uh, you would open it up to the church floor and the people that did the most talking were the people who knew the least about the subject. You ever seen that? And so there are things that are hard to do. And I, I remember thinking... If you put these committees together, why don't you just trust them to take care of those things as they come up and get them done? Well, some people felt that way and some people didn't. Some people wanted to be able to vote whether they really knew what they were voting for or not. And sometimes, my dad told me about a guy in his church, he routinely voted no on things. Routinely. And my dad asked him, why? Are you upset? And he goes, no, I just feel like everybody ought to hear from the opposition. In other words, if we were to vote to carry out the Great Commission, he would feel obliged to vote no, just so there was some balance. You know, sometimes when you vote with the opposition, it may not be the Lord you're voting with. Isn't that right? I was told that, well, when you get the majority together, you're going to be able to find God's will. Well, sometimes that happens. But sometimes it doesn't either. You remember when they sent 12 spies into the land of Canaan, and when they came back to make their committee report to the business meeting, what happened? The majority was wrong. The majority was wrong. What if of the group gathered for that business meeting, what if there are 50 people, say, that gather and 40 of them are out of the will of God, living carnal lives, unable to determine the mind of God 
Maybe they don't even understand the word of God. They're just there because they want to exercise their right to vote. And that led me on kind of a study of these kind of things. How did the early church do it? Were there some times where they asked the congregation for input? Yes. I think it is basically a congregational model. Uh, Acts chapter 6, there's a dispute in the church about the feeding of the widows. And the widows that were more of a, a bent toward the Grecian culture were not being fed as well as those who were more Orthodox Jews. So the apostles said, choose from yourselves, you know, and they chose from themselves men to serve as deacons to uh, solve that problem and to take care of it and meet practical needs in the body. And so there are those times that you see the congregation gathering. But it seemed like that as a lifelong Southern Baptist, there were two things I never, ever, ever, ever saw addressed. Now, it's more common now. There are a lot of people who do things, I, in my opinion, in a better way, in a more biblical way. But uh, back then, it was very, very unusual and I would see if they moved away from the church being a democracy and a free-for-all and that kind of thing. It went to a dictatorial, autocratic pastor. And uh, it was basically my way or the highway, the pastor might say. And something seemed kind of uneasy about, to me about that. And then I began to read about this thing about elders. And I didn't even know what an elder was. I thought it was something Presbyterian, but I knew Baptists didn't do it. And then I found out that historically, if you go back into the early days of the Baptist movement, they did have elders. Well, how come we don't have elders now? How come we're not using them now? And then the other question was, is it a biblical type of church government? Is it important? And imagine what it was like when I read what Paul wrote to Titus in Titus chapter 1 verse 5 that it was a priority for the Apostle Paul. It wasn't just an if you want to or if you get around to it or whatever you do, it really doesn't matter. This is a command from the Apostle to his young protege. Verse 5, Titus 1 verse 5. And he says... For this reason I left you in Crete. Well, that must be important. It would be to Titus anyway. That you should set in order the things that are lacking. Get things set up right. And appoint elders in every city as I suggested. What's it say? Commanded you. Better take it seriously. And then he tells us, well, don't just let anybody do it. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but, on the positive, hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast, some versions say holding forth the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine, you got to know the word of God, both to exhort or encourage or kind of help people move on or convict those who contradict. 
So I began to look at that and say, what is going on? I looked in the book of Acts and I looked in 1 Timothy and certainly looked at Titus and began to see this, this thing popping up over and over. Why is it that our church has elders? Why is it that the early New Testament church would appoint elders? Why was it so important to the Apostle Paul to get that done as a first priority? And the pattern of the early church and the principles of Scripture, they have always an emphasis on the local church. So I'll ask you to think about this. Paul did not say, Titus, when you go to Crete, appoint one bishop over all of the churches. He didn't say that. Appoint one set of elders that will rule over all of the churches. They didn't do that. So we understand that the New Testament does not teach a system of popes and cardinals and bishops as a hierarchy and uh, you know, kind of leave out the local church. All of this is local church. Appoint elders in every city. Every city where there would be a church. The local church is supposed to govern itself under the leadership of the Holy Spirit and according to the Word of God. Very, very local church uh, emphasized here. And that's why today we don't have anybody that we as a church that we report to in our denomination. We don't have anybody that we are accountable to in and above us. It's all centered on the local church. We're to organize and we are to live up to that and we are to discipline ourselves and we are to uh, take care of our own matters here. And every church does that, again, under the lordship of Christ according to the word of God. And also notice that everywhere you look at this in the Bible, there's an emphasis on plurality. Now, that could mean let's all get together and decide what we're going to do, and that's fine. But it certainly does not mean one guy runs the church. When I think about some of the pastors I've served under, and uh, they were accused of being dictators and that kind of thing. And in some cases that was wrong. And in some cases it was true. But I remember thinking about this. If one person makes the decisions, if one person is the one that does all of this and enforces it, here's the thing that came to my mind. What if he's wrong? What if he's wrong? What if he's out of fellowship with God? I know a pastor is never supposed to be out of fellowship with God, but what if he's out of fellowship with God? Have you ever been out of fellowship with God? Just say amen if that's true. You ever been carnal? You ever been in a bad mood that affected your judgment? You ever been sick? You couldn't think straight? You ever been on medicine that kind of altered the way you thought? You know, you ever have any baggage or scars that most of the things you can handle pretty good, but there's that one area that is sensitive and touchy in your life and it just throws you off? Anybody ever have anything like that? Let me tell you something. As pastors, we're not any different than you are. I would hate to put the fate of the church into one guy who just may be having a bad day and makes a horribly bad decision. I would also hate because I've been in this position, where there was something that I really believed was the will of God, but I didn't have anybody to back me up, and the church rejected it. Is there a better way, and a more biblical way, and a more efficient way, and even a more logical way 
for some of this. And I believe there is. In the New Testament, there's an emphasis on plurality of leadership so that if one guy is out of sorts, out of the will of God, there are some other people to correct that. If one person is wanting to charge ahead and it's the wrong time and the wrong situation, there are some others that pull back on the reins. If there's one person that uh, is right on something and the majority is wrong, there's a balance there that they can talk about and they can kind of come to and discern the will of God. That seems to be the way the early church operated. Notice it says appoint elders, plural, not just one. There are times when the Bible says, like in the book of Hebrews, it says obey them, plural, who have the rule over you, not just he who has the rule over you. There's supposed to be a plurality of leadership. And if you look at it in every situation, you will find that to be the case because it's the most efficient way to determine the will of God and to move ahead on that or not to run ahead of God just because a fad or a whim or the desires of one person or pressure from people who have money in the church or something like that. There's got to be a governing authority in the church and it needs to be more than just the congregation and uh, kind of t turning into something that is undesirable. And it's got to be more than just one person who does it who can shipwreck the whole thing. I would hate to be the captain of the Titanic, wouldn't you? And so there's an emphasis here on the idea of elders. This all comes from, if you'll uh, want to turn to Exodus chapter 18, there's a prototype for elders. Moses would be the one who would make judgments for the people. They would come to him and say, um, this guy has my goat. And the other person would, no, that's not your goat, that's my goat. And Moses would have to decide whose goat it was. There were other times when there might be a problem in a family. This person it took too much of grandpa's inheritance, and I'm entitled to more of it. I'm the firstborn, and Moses would have to settle that. Now, when you think about a million or so people, that could be a sizable task. So Moses' father-in-law, his name was Jethro, for those of you who are of a certain age, go ahead and laugh. It was Jethro. For those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. doesn't matter. And uh, he came down to see how things were going. And one of the things he noticed is that Moses was absolutely worn out. Because it was one man hearing all of the disputes and the complaints and the problems and the trials of the people... And he was having, having to settle all of those kind of things. You know what? I got a feeling that put anybody in a bad mood, wouldn't it? I wonder if Moses had been doing that kind of stuff when he struck the rock and got in trouble. I mean, you could see it would make you negative, frustrated, and all of that. The other thing, too, is that when Moses was starting off his day, he was probably a little fresher, a little more optimistic, and probably could give and render a better judgment than he could by noon. And then by the time the middle of the afternoon came, it's hot, the line is still long, oh my goodness, these people are so babyish and petty, and by the end of the day, I wonder if those people really got the best judgments, if they really got Moses at his best. And so Jethro was watching this, and Jethro uh, decides he's going to say something. Everybody ought to listen to their father-in-law, right? And in chapter 18, verse 15, 
And Moses said to his father-in-law, when he said, what are you doing? He says, the people come to me to inquire of God. And when they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another. And I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Now Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you were doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out. For the thing is too heavy for you. You were not able to do it alone. Key word there, alone. Now obey my voice and I will give you advice and God will be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their causes to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them to know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men... From all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times, and every great matter, matter that they have, they shall bring to you, but every small matter they shall decide themselves." So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. And if you do this, God will direct you, and you will be able to endure. And all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened, Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. And Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case, they brought to Moses. But any small matter, they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. Hey, Jethro did have a good sixth grade education, didn't he? Again, some of you don't know what that means. It's okay. But he was a smart guy. Moses, you're wearing yourself out. It's not good for you. It's not good for your family. And it's not good for the people because they're not getting your best. They are wearing you out. And I don't know about you, but when I'm worn out, I don't always make good decisions. I don't always see things clearly. It's just not a good situation. And so you can see the thing there was, divide the load, make sure people are being taken care of, all the way down to tens of people, and take care of those matters among themselves, and you proclaim the word to them, teach them how to live, and then when a big matter comes up, then that's when you need to get involved. It's kind of a prototype for what the Bible speaks of when it talks about having elders in the church. And so as we share the load and as we work together on it, Paul said that you need to do this. Number one, I want you to note the importance of the office. This is not a, uh, something that you can ignore here. This is what Paul said. I'm commanding you to do it. It's the reason that you are left in Crete. The singular reason that he was in Crete was setting all of these things in order, and that included setting up elders in the churches. So if it's not important to you, and it is important to the Apostle Paul, guess who's wrong? 
You need to adjust your thinking to what the Word of God says through the Apostle Paul. This is important. It's not just a no matter type of thing. Number two, I want you to notice the character of these people. He's got to be a man who is blameless. Now, notice we didn't use the word perfect. We use the word blameless because that means basically, <clears throat> if you were to hear that uh, I took somebody out behind the church and beat the snot out of them, I would think, hope, pray that you would go, wait a minute, that doesn't sound like our pastor. Because I could walk in a way that we'd be blameless in that area. That if you heard a rumor that I was at a bar last night and, uh, you know, they had to throw me out of the bar and all that, that you would go, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. In other words, you could give the benefit of the doubt to me because in those areas I'm blameless. Paul said the elders need to be the people that even though they're not perfect, that if they do lose their temper or if they do something that you know is wrong and we all know is wrong, that we also understand that's not the pattern of their lives. Give them the benefit of the doubt. The word blameless there is that kind of a word. No, they're not going to be perfect. Paul knew that. Titus knew that. They're fallible human beings. And in some cases, in this church, because it was a new ministry, they may not be as seasoned and as well learned in the scriptures as we would like. But they're growing and they're learning like all of us. But there's a certain characteristic of their life blameless. You know they're not going to be like the prodigal son. You know they're not going to be uh, you know, living in an unfaithful, ungodly manner. And when they do, you give them the benefit of the doubt. A man is blameless. He's got to be the husband of one wife. That is decidedly male. And then, now this is tricky. Some translations say, having believing children... Is that the best way to translate that? Does every elder, every pastor have believing children? Uh, you know what I'm going to say? No. Because three-year-olds are not born again. Most five-year-olds are not born again. That means that at a certain time in life, I had lost children, didn't I? Is that right? Yeah. They had to be saved. They had to be born again. And before that, they're lost. Does that mean disqualified to be an elder? Well, that wouldn't make much sense to me. What in the world could he be talking about here? Well, the Greek word actually and literally means faithful. Faithful children. Now, could that mean a born-again child? You bet it can but what does it mean for those children that are not saved and not saved yet in the household? Guy has to wait until all of his kids get saved before he can be a pastor or an elder? Boy, that just doesn't make sense at all. I think what he's talking about is that the person that you choose to be an elder needs to be in charge of his home. He needs to make sure that his home is functioning in an orderly manner. Again, not a perfect manner. But in an orderly manner, are the kids disciplined when they do wrong? Are they being taught the right things? Is the man paying attention to his family? Which uh, seems to be kind of a big thing to me 
We don't want elders that are so busy ministering to us that they let their marriage fall apart or they don't discipline their kids or they're not teaching their kids the faithful word of God. I mean, after all, Paul said to Timothy, how does a man run the house of God if he can't manage his own household? I think this is speaking of children that obey their father Children that are disciplined when they disobey their father. And that the tone of the home is not just live any way you want. What can you do with your kids? But no, we're going to pull this together and we're going to go in the right direction. Are we always successful at that? Are we always perfect at that? No. But blameless? It could be. You would want it to be the kind of situation to where your kids don't grow up and say this whole thing, they may never trust Christ, but they know that their dad and their mom believed it. They're not surprised. They're not going, well, my parents are fakes. I had to live in that home, and you can't believe what went on in that home. Oh, they were different at church than they were at home. No, you want it to be where the parents are faithful, and the children are faithful to what the parents expect out of them. Now, once a child leaves the home, they're on their own, aren't they? And when it says having believing children, I've got a question for you. How do you even control that? Because I can't save my children. You can't save your children. And we don't know, even know for certainty until they're actually saved if they're ever going to be saved. It seems to me that Paul is saying here that the elder must be a faithful father with children that are faithful to follow his instructions or else. And that's the pattern of the home. That's the way that they go in, um, uh, in their life and in their home. And so then it goes on to talk about the uh, other things that have to come up in terms of the function of this elder who has a well-ordered and disciplined household, who has the tone and the direction of his life, is blameless. You give him the benefit of the doubt. Well, what, how does he function? And it's interesting here that now, Paul, what are you talking about? You started off with elders, now you're talking about bishops? What are we playing, chess? Or what happened here? Did we turn Methodist all of a sudden? Or Roman Catholic or something? What do you mean by that? Well, one of the things that I found in studying all of this is that there are three basic words used for those who were called to lead the church. Sometimes you read the word pastor. Poimen is the Greek word. Sometimes you read the word bishop, it's episkopos. And sometimes you read the word elder, it's presbyteros. And some denominations take their names from those Greek words. But what I was amazed to find is that all three of those words can be used interchangeably. Bishop, elder, and pastor. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 5, <clears throat> I've got it on the screen, and I've got the words highlighted. Each one of those words talking about one function in the church. Listen, it says, The elders, okay, that's presbyteros, who are among you I exhort, I, Peter said, who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that we will be revealed. Now he's telling them what to do. Elders, what do you do? Well, you shepherd, that's the word poimen, that's the word pastor, Pastor the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers. That's the word sometimes translated bishop, episkopos. Don't do it by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, 
nor as being lords over those entrusted to you. You're not cracking the whip. But being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, the chief pastor, is the Greek word, appears, you will receive a crown of glory that does not fade away. Hey, that's a pretty good deal for those of you who are called to be elders. But notice the function there. They are to oversee. They are to be an elder and they are to shepherd those three words used interchangeably that describe the function. You could talk to any one of our elders and you could call them bishop. You ought to do that sometime. Go up to John Rawson and say, hello, Bishop John. and Do that kind of thing. I could be called the Bishop of Graceway, right? According to that. I'm also an elder and I'm also a pastor, shepherd over Graceway and the elders function in the same way. So we've got to make sure that we understand that. And then number four, notice, and we'll spend a little bit more time here, the, their lifestyle and ministry. What are they supposed to do? Well, must be blameless as a steward of God. This is not their ministry. It's not their church. It belongs to God. And every part of their life is supposed to be a stewardship. Don't let stewardship make you think only of money. Uh Uh-oh, here we go. It's also stewardship of time, stewardship of your gifts, stewardship of everything that you do, your family, your home, any ministry you have in the church. You're doing it as a manager of what God owns. You just take care of it. Not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable and a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the, the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict his... Uh, those who contradict, pardon me. So that's a long, long list. And you can also look at 1 Timothy chapter 3 and you can see those things in here. What are we talking about? We're talking about you want somebody as an elder who sees himself under the control of God, managing his own personal resources and also the resources of the church because all of them belong God and they include God's people. You want him to be the kind of person that Paul talks about here that uh, not only is a good steward of that, but notice some things. Some things are obvious, some things are not. They're not self-willed. A self-willed person is obstinate. They hold themselves as a standard. They manipulate things and other people in order to please themselves. He's not supposed to be angry. That's actually the word wrathful. That means somebody who holds a grudge, like slow-burning hot coals. He's not supposed to be given to intoxication. You'd hate to say to an elder, you know, I need some counseling for my marriage. And he says, well, I've had a little bit too much to drink here, but I'll do my best. I mean, that'd be a horrible thing, wouldn't it? And he's not supposed to uh, be engaged in outrageous behavior is what that word came to uh, mean later on. He's not supposed to be violent. He doesn't. There were times in the early church Uh, Not in the Bible, but in other records about it where overseers have found a member in sin and they beat him up. You don't want a person who does that. We don't result to violence. We're not going to punch somebody's lights out or anything like that. That also can uh, can be understood to be a verbal, a browbeater, 
or a verbal assault or anything. We don't want people like that. Not greedy, that's pretty evident. Hospitable, meaning generous and helpful, especially to strangers. A lover of good can also mean lover of good things, lover of good people, lover of good causes. He's supposed to be sober or clear-headed, not controlled by anything or anyone else. He's supposed to be just, treating everybody right. There's no uh, favored people in the church or some people that we kind of wink and overlook what they do and other people we pounce on. We don't want that kind of a thing. Impartial maybe would be a good way to look at it. Holy, you can get that. Self-controlled, mastering himself. Before they ever try to control you, they control themselves. And how do they do this? Paul said, holding to the scripture. A good grasp of the word of God, the gospel, godly principles. And it is supposed to be done for the benefit of others. There are some people that need to be persuaded. Some people need to be convinced. Some people need to be corrected. Some people need to be encouraged. And the whole time we're using the word of God in order to do this so that the body is built up. So that things are done decently and in order. And again, you have to remember we're not perfect, but we do want to be Christ-like. We do want to have this. And remember the passage we read in Peter. It says that they are supposed to function as examples. And one of the things I hear people say is things like this. Well, I'm glad I'm not a pastor. I wouldn't want to be held to that standard. You know what I want to say to you? Surprise, you are. My job is to set the example. The elder's job is to set the example of how everybody is supposed to live. Is it a high standard to be called to that? Yes, because we want to set a high, holy, and good example for anyone that follows us because you are supposed to follow the examples that have been set before you. And when all of this happens, why do we need this? Well, down in verse 10 of chapter 1, it says, For there are many who are insubordinate, And they are empty talkers, and they are deceivers. You know, there's a lot of deception in this world. Why do you need good, godly leadership? Why does it need to fit the qualifications of Scripture and function the way the Scripture wants them to function? Because there's a lot of junk out there, folks. There's a lot of deceivers. There's a lot of falsehood that's going on. And today with the Internet, anybody can get a hold of it. You need people that are going to make sure the church doesn't drift into that direction. You need people that are going to be able to talk to you. And whenever you have questions, they're going to be able to bring you back in line with the Scripture. And they're going to do it because they love you, because they care about you, and because they want to pastor you. They want to shepherd you. And they want you to thrive. They want you to grow. They want you to defeat the enemy. They want you to be an overcomer. And so I want to close today by uh, asking our elders and their wives to go ahead and uh, come on up here to the front of the church because we're going to pray for them. Brother Donnie and Miss Ruth can't come because they're in Florida. So uh, it's kind of hard to get them back here for an hour or so. And uh, Brother Steve is really, really hurting, really, really down in his back. And so uh, they won't be here. But the other ones are. And uh, they're coming up here and we're going to come and gather around them and pray for them. And so if you ever want to know who your elders are, they're coming right up here. Brother Dale is one of them, Brother John Rawson, Brother Jimmy Hillis, and Brother Donnie Harden, and Brother Steve Elkins. They serve. Come on up here, right up here in front of the Lord's Supper table. And we have their wives come too because these guys are nothing without their wives. 
I thought that would get a bigger response out of this. Man, they need it. Amen. <laughs> yeah. And uh, they bear the burdens with these guys. They also bear some of the criticism that comes with these people. And the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, you can either make it easy to be an elder or you can make it really hard. You ought to read that sometime. There's your assignment. And I want, and my heart is, to make it easy for these guys. To make it easy. Because the better they are in their walk with God, and the more enthusiastic they are about shepherding the church, the better job they're going to do. So I'm going to ask you as a church body to stand and come on up here and gather around these men and their wives. And as we do this, this is not only for them, this is for all of us. The well-being and the health of the church. Isn't it interesting that when Paul spoke to Titus, the very first thing he said for the health of the church is for everything to be set in order. Now we'll be the first to admit we're not perfect and we have a lot of, lot of inadequacies. Because we don't point to ourselves as being the adequate ones. We are pointing to Jesus. He's the only one who is sufficient and the only one who is adequate. And we're just asking you to pray for us that we would be more like Jesus every single day, every single month, every single year. And we're also asking that you might join with us in the ministry because Ephesians chapter 4, 11, and 12 doesn't say the church calls ministers. The church is full of ministers and it's the job of the leadership to equip the saints, you guys, for the work of ministry. That's why we're going out tonight. We want to do that because as a body we can do a whole lot more than just a handful of men can do, right? And we want to be at our very, very best. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes and name the names of these men and their wives. Pray out loud. We'd like to hear you praying for us for protection, for grace, for power, for understanding, for consistency, for love. Mercy, morality, all of that.